Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Truth to Power. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm a programmer here on the station and I'm excited to have a bunch of folks gathered around the virtual microphones for our weekly community conversation. Uh, and this week's topic is really, really exciting. We are going to talk about Louisville's past and future about how we move from a colonial economic model to a cooperative one. And here to talk about that with me are Doug Lowry, uh, co-host here on Truth to Power. Welcome, Doug. Thanks, Justin. And I've also got two special guests joining us in the studio. Dolores Butler is here. She is president of the board of directors at the Louisville Community Grocery. Welcome, Dolores. Glad to be here. And a new friend of mine I haven't met yet, Teresa Lee is joining us. She is historic site supervisor at a very fine place down in southwest Jefferson County called Riverside, the Farnsley Mormon Landing. And she is part of the brand new Louisville Coalition on the History of the Enslaved with representatives from Farmington and Locust Grove. Really excited to learn more about this history and how it can inform our future. So welcome to the airwaves, Teresa. Teresa. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's start in the past with you, Teresa. <laughs> uh, tell us about uh, Riverside, first of all, and then how you got involved in this coalition. Um, Riverside is a 300-acre metro park. We are actually one of two historic properties, along with Locust Grove, that is owned and operated by Louisville Metro Parks. And it is a historic farm site. Um, there was a riverboat landing and it's named after the two families that have the longest history on the property. So Gabriel Farnsley and uh, the Mormon family. And the centerpiece of the property is a, uh, an, a historic 1837 brick home that's been interpreted as a, as a historic house museum. And on the property is Louisville's oldest community garden. And wow. part of the, yeah, and part of the property is still leased to a, a farmer who grows forage crops. So it's still actively being farmed. And wow. uh, Riverside has an ongoing archaeology program. We have a public archaeology program that has really informed our interpretation specifically on the lives of the enslaved people who lived there. We don't have a lot of historical documentation. And it's great because the archeologists who've worked there have also worked at Farmington and Locust Grove and are um, hoping to work at Oxmoor very soon. Um, Oxmoor is really fascinating. It was the home of the Bullitt family and it was a, an, a hemp plantation, but the family lived there and I know I'll probably get the date wrong until um, the early 2000s, maybe 2003. And they have 14 existing outbuildings, including hmm. four slave cabins. Wow. And they have not opened yet to the public. They're really new as far as interpreting the property and the history of the property. And they are another member of our coalition. And um, Farmington is was the, uh, the home of the Speed family. Um, and it was another hemp plantation. And actually Lucy Speed and Martha Bullitt were sisters. So not only were the Speed and the Bullet families related, but members of the enslaved communities at both of those plantations were also related. 
And then Locust Grove, of course, is the other historic property operated by Metro Parks. They are at the on the upper end of the falls, whereas Riverside is at the lower end. Um, but there were below the falls. We're 13 river miles south of Louisville. That was the, the home of the Cron family. And that is where George Rogers Clark spent his last days. And all of us are properties that interpret 19th century history. And we all have ongoing efforts to acknowledge and find out, even just find out about these people who lived in, on these properties. So the coalition really grew out of that effort, um, and it, it's really an extension of efforts that started over 20 years ago. Efforts to really do justice to those stories and to to tell the truth about the past, to not refer to enslaved people as servants or, mm, right. uh, you know, to actually... It wasn't so bad. Yeah. Right. Well, and, 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 and or to, you know, install memorials that commemorate the lives of those people. And at Riverside, from the very beginning, we've included as much information as we possibly could. And we've updated our exhibits and, and, and made that... Uh, a really a priority of our research and that has led to some amazing discoveries. Um, we have all of our respective sites have identified members of the descendant communities of the enslaved people there and we all to varying degrees have, have formed relationships with them to really have them be a part of the story that we tell and to really be more not only sensitive and accurate but to take this really painful part of our history and to be more more trauma informed and more about the way we present it and to help people in the present understand the roots of the things that they're seeing. You know, these things like, you know, social justice issues are mm -hmm. rooted in our past. They're rooted in this collective past that we are not always getting the whole story. And the coalition, our goal at this point to work primarily with an organization called the Slave Dwelling Project. Um, it's run by a man named Joe McGill. And he came to Louisville in 2019 and did a program at Locust Grove that was widely popular. And Shirley Harmon and Kathy Nichols from Oxmoor and Farmington uh, approached him before he left town about coming back. It was the first time he'd been to Kentucky. And he, he, we wanted to make sure that he knew that we, we wanted to bring him back. And they started planning this, this joint program and they were gracious enough to invite Riverside to be part of that. And so we had a great weekend planned for May of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, it involved um, an overnight um, camping out opportunity at Oxmoor with Joe and a campfire discussion and then a panel discussion at, um, at, at Farmington and then, um, some of the people who work with Joe, who are historical interpreters, were going to be out at Riverside, and they were going to be interpreting brick making and, and cooking in our reconstructed kitchen on the property. And it was going to be a great weekend. <laughs> but what happened instead is that we have done a series of virtual events, which have been phenomenal. And they've given us a broader reach than we would have um, for these in-person activities 
And, you know, as we're planning this weekend, we realize that, first of all, our capacity is limited and it's going to be really popular and that this this topic is so broad that it, it really encompasses more than just one weekend. So our three sites, Riverside, Farmington and Oxmoor, made a multi-year commitment to seek funding and, and to have programming around issues of descendant communities and the history of enslavement here in Louisville. And immediately we were, um, we knew we had to include Locust Grove. I think Louisville is great because among the, the cultural organizations, there has been a great collaborative um, spirit fostered and we have all worked together and we've all had conversations about this topic for for years and it just it seemed it seemed so natural um so in in on a conference call with with joe um you know on a zoom meeting several gosh just a few months ago we were talking about how these historic issues really are connected to to what's going on in the present and that we not only have a professional responsibility but a, a, a personal passion about um, opening up spaces where we can have difficult conversations um, for really doing the work um, a lot of the emotional labor that um, is put on communities of color a lot um, really giving, you know, explaining things to people. People come to us with interesting questions and, you know, they ask about things. And, you know, we tell people, you know, if somebody tells you something, if, you know, you have a black friend and they tell you about their experience, believe them. Even even that, how we're facilitating these relationships in the present and and we're talking about things that for a long time didn't get talked about. But we also want to reinterpret that history in a way that is not re-traumatizing right. for black visitors because right. it, it needs to move beyond the narrative of look at how bad slavery really was and, and the victimization. Um, because enslaved people had agency. They were still people. They, they resisted. Um, they, they fought back. They reasserted their humanity day after day and time after time. And we have records and artifacts that show us how they did that um, by creating a sense of community, by insisting on forming families and, and bonds and, and these institutions that would carry the community through the, you know, through emancipation and, and through reconstruction and through the, the, the Jim Crow years and, and that are still so integral right now as we fight for modern day justice. And it's, 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 it's just about using our platform that we have in order to, um, to amplify this conversation. So. so if somebody, Teresa, was gonna come to one of these historic sites, what should people know enough about, you know, a lot of people come for a tour and they take pictures of furniture and they visit the gift shop and to them that's the, that's the visit, that's the tour. See, what does a like, person who wants to upend colonialism <laughs> need to know before well, they come? I'm gonna offer some suggestions 
Um, and that, and honestly, you are not going to, you are not going to get that at Riverside. We, we do our best not to do the, what we call the Moonlight and Magnolias tour. Um, <laughs> and we do not want to perpetuate. You know, skirts in the gift shop. No, we do not. And we do not. The terror vision that comes with the word plantation, we actually do our best to squash, um, to not encourage. Mm. And the reasons why we formed this coalition is to create a set of local best practices for museums, because how powerful is it if you can't come as an out-of-town visitor and get the good slave owner narrative anywhere that in and of itself is powerful and it's about creating opportunities for our staff and our volunteers because most of the people who give these tours are volunteers i want to throw out a couple of recommendations Um, sure if you want to open your mind and open your heart and and your tear ducts one of the best primers is edward baptist the tale half told the half has never been told. The, the half has never been told. Yeah. Um, he came to Louisville for the first citywide book club at Highland Baptist Church. We had room for 325 people and 600. Whoa. I was I was in the basement watching that televised. <laughs> it was such a that book is so powerful. And if, it, you, it, if you're a brave white person. Yep. or Non-black person and you want a good primer. Read just the first 45 pages. If you can make it through the first 45 pages, you'll get a taste. The other primer for people is Jessica Gordon-Nimhart's Collective Courage, which is the story of Black resilience after Reconstruction. How did Black people survive? How did people find not just the, the physical courage, but the economic resilience? How did people work together in a, in a system that wasn't just oppressive, you know, you've, you've heard of people being paranoid just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. Everybody was out to get you. You know, so it, it's a story of thriving in the, in the face of outright oppression and, you know, mm. attempts at extermination. So those are two resources. Do you want to jump in here with a question, Dolores? No, I just wanted to uh, comment on what Teresa had said about when a black person tells you Mm. where they've been and what they've done, believe them. And we need to take those type things into consideration, you know, Mm -hmm. because if you've never been there or you've never experienced that lifestyle, then what they say is very important for you to take in. And, you know, you don't know what's going to be said that will help somebody else. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm. So never just throw it aside as, as if it's not important because it's very important. And I think some of the struggles that African-American or people of color have been through are very important. And an example to many of our white uh, individuals, you know, a lot of I have talked to a lot of white people. They said, well, you know, I've never been uh, black. I don't have not know what that's all about. But if you listen closely, then you can kind of grasp hold of some of the things that uh, people of color have experienced and, and not take that lightly, but really appreciate that and cherish that and maybe reach out to your communities because there's some uh, white areas that no uh, uh, people of color have never, they've never associated with one another. I'll put it like that. So if you've never been there, then you don't know what it's all mm. about. But when you've been there and you've experienced it for yourself, then let that be a help 
to you and helping somebody else. I mm. guess that's what I'm trying to say. That's right. Well, Dolores, as a person of color, can I ask, do you do you tend to avoid places like Locust Grove and, and Riverside because you find them re-traumatizing? Or are you able to navigate that when you go to places like that? I navigate because, you know, I think it's all about the way you've been brought up, mm. your childhood. Many times people have been taught anything that you are against in your childhood as far as racial, that's taught. Mm. That's not nothing that you just know, you know. It comes from childhood. I will always believe that. Uh, but I was always taught to teach to treat people the same, regardless of the color of their skin, their background or where they came from. I was taught that from a child. And so wherever I go, <laughs> I accept people for who they are. So many people don't because of that, because of the way that their upbringing or the way they've been taught. Uh, I never will believe that that's just something that just happens. Well, and I get to facilitate some really interesting moments. Okay. Honestly, it's an honor in some moments, you know, and it's so enlightening to me. And, you know, I had a gentleman who was, gosh, you know, from all appearances, you know, middle class, white, and we were talking about privilege and we were talking about modern, and I have that conversation with a lot of people, you know, modern day privilege and it, and the fact that it doesn't make you a bad person. Mm -hmm. We can't control whether or not we have it. What we can control is how we mobilize that privilege. And his comment was, why should I care? And I said, um, and really, he wasn't being facetious or smart or even confrontational. He was just curious. Mm. And and I said, because whether we want to believe it or not, we're all connected. And what hurts mm. us all, hurts one of us, hurts all of us, uh, ultimately. And there's a wonderful book called The Sum of Us that talks about the economic costs of racism. And Ibram Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning is a wonderful book. And it's um, it's a comprehensive study of racist policy in America. And his point is, is that, is that racist policies don't start off being racist. They start off being, um, being, uh, they privilege one people, they're economically, they economically privilege one group of people. And then racism is cultivated to justify those policies. And his work, oh my gosh. Um, but then there's, there's some amazing work there's another book, My Grandmother's Hands, that talks about racial trauma and it talks about how we as white people and people of color, how we heal this, this generational wound that has been passed on. And we, I think the goal of the coalition is, is really to open up spaces for a lot of the difficult conversations and to make sure that we're doing that in a way um, that makes people heard. And we do that through our programming. Um, Riverside has started a program with Central High School students to advise us on the interpretation of our slave dwelling sites. Locust Grove is working with the African-American Theater Department at UofL um, to do their first person interpretation. And they actually have black people doing interpretation. You know, we're working with Joe McGill and we were able to get Cheney McKnight from Not Your Mama's History on a panel discussion. And Oxmoor, they are engaging the descendant community in the interpretation of their property from the very beginning. And so in Farmington, they have a woman um, who's 
family is descendant from a formerly enslaved couple who gives tours at Farmington hmm. and who is um, really active in their volunteer program. And hmm. they have been including interpretation about the enslaved African-Americans since, gosh, for over 20 years. So this is really just the next step. And it's, it's connecting those puzzle pieces in a, in a much more obvious way. And really the last year, it's given a new sense of purpose to what we do. And that was really, um, Joe McGill is the one who basically encouraged us to form this coalition because of the, the need, because of what is going on. And as a response to this, this new push um, and this new, you know, people at the epicenter of it, we have a unique way to contribute and, and to open up our spaces in unique ways. Well, before we go any further, I would love to know more about what is the, the history of the enslaved. I know it's probably a very diverse one if we look at all of Kentucky or something like that. But if we could narrow it down to some of these Louisville historic properties, were were these places like Riverside settled originally with enslaved people? Uh, most. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So most of the farms of the major farms in Kentucky were um, Kentucky had more per capita slave owners, slaveholders. Um, enslavers is actually the term we like to use. We we refer to people as enslaved and enslavers, right. um, not <clears throat> simply because this is something that is is done to, to other them. people. It doesn't yeah, define It is not. Them, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and there are people who don't necessarily agree with that term, um, you know, black people who feel like it's sugarcoating it. And if they express that to me, I absolutely um, adjust the language I use. Mm. But in, in, um, it's really the most comments I get about it are from from not from not people of color. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, so, can, and a lot of, well, a lot of enslaved people came here with the first settlers and basically came from the, the upper mid-Atlantic states, Maryland, Virginia, um, Pennsylvania, um, these areas that um, were, con the, the agriculture was changing and they, even before the revolution, they considered themselves to have a surplus enslaved population. Wow. And um, so a lot of them came here and, in fact, between 18, and these numbers come straight from Ed Baptist's book, um, The Half has, has Not Been Told, is a great resource. It's, it's emotional and it's difficult, but it's a great resource um, as far as number numbers and, and the, the economics of it all. Mm. Um, but up until... 1820, between 18, 1790 and 1819, about 65,000 enslaved people were brought to Kentucky. Wow. But from 1820 to 1860, about 70,000 people were exported from the state of Kentucky. So we, they, we end up with a net loss. So, and it really, because of um, in Kentucky's location along the river and geographically, it made us a, a major part of the, the domestic slave trade right. and the interstate slave trade. And, um, and, and did Riverside specifically play a role in that? 
Well, it was so there was a riverboat landing. It was we we don't if if it did, we don't have documentation right. for okay. that. Okay. But it was usually centered around Louisville. In fact, at one time there were twelve open air slave markets in Louisville. Wow. And um Harriet Beecher Stowe, her first her first um, encounter with slavery is actually coming from Cincinnati to Louisville. And this, um, you know, the same with uh, Abraham Lincoln. His, he talks about being on the riverboat and, and encountering um, people being, being transported south and <clears throat> the impression that it makes on him. Yeah. Um, and, and really, it's so, it's so ironic that there's a, a narrative here of it you know, that slavery was kinder and kinder and gentler here in Kentucky. Mm. Um, but it, 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 because it, of the song, right? Right, right. <laughs> My old Kentucky home. It makes you yeah. sweet. We yeah. know more well, but that's actually being written. But that's even comes from the perspective of an enslaved man who's being right. sold South and who's never going to see Kentucky again. And we have documentation of, family separations, you know, um, John Crittenden was the grand marshal of, of the sale um, where 13 people um, were sold to eight different new enslavers um, from Riverside after Gabriel Farnsley died. And we know of at least two family groups that were split up in that sale. We have record of an enslaved mom, his heir being sold. Wow. So. He's referred to as Tom's heir. He's recognized at the, as this man's descendant, wow. um, but then he's traded as a piece of property. And um, hmm. in the, the the reality of it, you know, people talk about, oh, they had these these great relationships and they cared for each other, but the underlying economic motivations always overrode any personal consideration, and it's. These are complex history, and these are yeah. real people who are navigating it. And um, not telling the whole story denies people the wholeness of their humanity. Um, it we have to, despite you know whether or not our property is dedicated to the history of some prominent family or person, we have to tell the truth about that person mm -hmm. um, in order to even do them justice. And I, um, because of the archeology, span we know about 10,000 years of history before Riverside was even settled. Um, um, Riverside first be, was established as a farm in 1820, um, Locust Grove, their history is a little bit earlier in the late 1700s. And Riverside and Locust Grove were both what we would call mixed farming operations. They weren't any kind of cash crop, whereas Farmington and Oxmoor were hemp plantations. And hemp was the major cash crop uh, that would have been, um, that an enslaved labor force would have been used to create. Um, but especially in Louisville, because you've got this mix, the river and this mixture of industry, a lot of enslaved people lived in an urban setting and they were hired out. They were highly skilled craftsmen. And, and um, artisans, you know, they were seamstresses and weavers. They were brick masons and teamsters, and they worked on the steamboats. And um, they, um, they were jockeys in the derby. They were yeah. jockeys in the derby. <laughs> they worked for distillers. Um, wow. They, they, they were um, 
Michael Twitty, he's a historian. Um, he wrote The Cooking Gene, and, and he came to Locust Grove, uh, I think it was in 2018. And he makes the point that enslaved people um, were brought here empty-handed, but not empty-headed. Right. And they came here with all sorts of skills. In fact, Americans, well, European colonizers were very aware of the skills that Africans possessed. Um, they had um, metallurgy skills, and we did. If we didn't have um, their knowledge, we couldn't have grown rice or indigo. They were actually importing people from parts of Africa where they had certain skills that they need. And that's one of the reasons you get um, like the Gullah population around um, uh, South Carolina, is it South Carolina? Yes. That area, um, like the coastal um, Southeast United States and uh, is, is because they were actually bringing people in from regions where they knew how to do certain things. Um, but especially here in Kentucky, um, when there was no stable U.S. currency, enslaved people represented um, a form of, of property a that not bank account, only right? yeah. yeah it was yeah. a bank, and it not only was it a secure investment, but it um, uh, by about 1840, the price of enslaved people and the price of cotton had quit tracking together. Regardless of what the price of cotton was doing, the price of enslaved people kept going up. Wow, wow. And so it, it was a, a secure form of investment that you could hire out yeah. so you could continually make money. Um, and then you always, especially in Louisville, as, as a major stop on the, the trade, it was... Um, and even in, in, gosh, these numbers are all found from an Ed Baptist book. Um, but they estimate in 1860 that the 4 million enslaved people represented about $41 billion. Wow. wow. That's about $118 billion today. Mm. And, um, mm. and, and so it's really, I'm in a, a unique position to be able to give people information that they didn't have and, um, and to hopefully confront some of the resistance that a lot of people have um, when they are presented with information that contradicts what they were told. Sure, sure. And we all um, have these narratives for what they believe. I think one of the most common misconceptions that in, in the South, but everywhere in the United States, is if you're not wealthy, it's your fault. It had nothing to do with the wealth that was passed down to you that was literally stolen through yeah. black bodies and stolen wealth. And then after people were free, this is my favorite Kevin Cosby quote. He says, what are you talking about? The slaves were free. They weren't free. They were fired because basically they were driven off the property. And if they remained, they remained as sharecroppers. They're mm -hmm. just like the, the, the you hear, hear about the mining towns in West Virginia, Virginia and Kentucky, where the company store owed everything. The only thing worse than being enslaved is being a sharecropper and literally having these um, this sort of fealty, this utter loyalty and, and, you know, complete control of your life in all kinds of ways with the perception that you're free. Mm. You're told you're free, but you're really not free because if you're right. not free economically, you're not free. Right. right. Absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the... Um, 
uh, gosh, I got to go to the um, the Smithsonian Museum of African American Culture, History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and they have one of the watchtowers from Angola Prison there. And Angola Prison is a former sugar plantation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think if you, any, and history is not, we are learned history as a series of isolated names and dates and events, but everything is connected, just like we're connected today, mm-hmm. um, despite this myth of individualism. And I tell people as a historian and an anthropologist, this whole st- this whole idea of, of individualism is a terrible survival strategy. Yeah. If we had depended on this, <laughs> we would have not survived as a species. It goes against every... Um, communalism is a, is the way we have accomplished things, yeah. and um, and it really it kind of blows people's minds mm-hmm. because it's not the way we've operated for mm-hmm. so long. And by, I mean, people do. You really see this is an emotional process for a lot of people, wow. and a lot of people who call themselves progressive. Mm-hmm. And. Um, that's that i mean that's all there's a there's a different kind of experience with every but it's it's always an opportunity to plant a seed we're speaking today with folks about the past and future of Louisville. Uh, you just heard from uh, Teresa Lee who is a member of the the brand new Louisville Coalition on the History of the Enslaved, and she is Historic Site Supervisor down at Riverside, the Farnsley Mormon Landing. Uh, and we're also delighted to have in the virtual studio with us Dolores Butler, president of the Louisville Community Grocery. I'm Justin Mogg, and Doug Lowry is co-hosting with me today here on Truth to Power. If we could start moving towards the future and talk about... Uh, and honestly, Absolutely. it's a it's a future deeply rooted in the past, right? As, as we've already mm-hmm. we've already referenced Jessica Gordon Emhart's book Collective Courage, which is all about how those who were enslaved helped come out of slavery and build wealth through cooperative economics, and that's what we're trying to do here in downtown Louisville today. And in the context of grocery stores, right, Dolores? We, we've we suffered so much from the loss of our downtown groceries, and we know that we can't just rely on sort of a, a colonial model of, of groceries anymore. we got to do something different, right? Exactly. And, you know, I, I'm really excited about being the president of the Louisville Community Grocery. You know, in 2020, we survived racial injustice, political instability. You know, we went through quite a bit. And we're working hard now to to make decisions to help achieve and establish a goal in establishing our co-op grocery store Mm -hmm. here in louisville and you know uh we're looking at the west west community and want our grocery store to be established there and you know we want to present you know you're going to these I say on every corner, there's a dollar store, a oh general dollar, or a family dollar store. Right. And, you know, you can go in there and get all kind of unhealthy foods like chips, pops, and little, <laughs> you know, nuts and snacks. But you do not see very many healthy foods like fresh foods and vegetables. Right. That our children can pick up an apple or orange or some lettuce and things such as that. Uh, I want to see us be able to walk in a store that we can pick up some healthy foods. And not only that, 
walk in a store that we have ownership of. Right. That I, you know, we walk in, we we uh buy things in Kroger's, we buy things in Walgreens and all these other stores, but you have no part in the ownership of that particular store. All you're doing is paying for what you get and that's it. But to know that you actually have a part of ownership in this particular store means so much, you know. And not only that, you're having to develop wealth in your community. Yes. Uh, and this is so, so very, very important in ownership. And you're supporting our local farmers and helping them to go forward and what they're trying to achieve as well. as So we're all just helping one another uh, in the future. And this is what we're looking forward to, a store that will provide the things that we need, health and wealth and community coming together, joining together. I love to see our senior citizens be able to walk to a store mm. that's convenient and in the neighborhood that is accessible for them, where they can buy affordable food that they can call, you know, that will be a help to them. And also, if they're on the bus line, they yeah. can just catch yeah. the bus to the store. You know, there's only one store in the West End that's very convenient, and that's 28th and uh, uh, Broadway, a Kroger store, and many of our seniors can't get there. Mm -hmm. If somebody don't go and take them, they, they have no transportation. So it's very hard. So if we can establish a co-op store of our own, and that we can say that's ours, and our residents can walk to that store, and affordable, fresh fruits, vegetables that they can uh, uh, get for themselves and be healthy for their bodies. It would be, we wouldn't have all this obesity and unhealthy. Uh, our young people, I see young children, you know, overweight, you know, and, and suffering. Well, it's because of the foods that we eat. You know, we have to say, you know, what we take into our bodies affect our lives. So we have to think about that. So. We're wanting to develop this healthy co-op mm -hmm. and to be an outreach to help others, you know, and I believe we can do that. You know, uh, we're in the process of having pop-ups in our own. We have been having uh, some very important owner and uh, ownership meetings, committee meetings. Uh, I definitely believe in food justice, you know, yeah. and we have to work hard to establish that. Uh, we have over 400, over 430 members. We're working hard to try to achieve at least 800 members as we go on and on. But, you know, everything good, I always say everything good takes time. Yep. So, you know, <laughs> so we can't rush it. <laughs> but we know that in due time, we're going to get there, you know, and hopefully Metro Louisville, you know, we'll we, be we looking towards some things there. And so, you know, I'm just, just optimistic about the, op of the future of our Louisville Community Grocery Co-op. And I think that, you know, we have people from all over. We have business owners. We have educators, entrepreneurs, pastors. We have uh, uh, many people that are a part of this program. You know, lawyers and people that want to be a part. And we try to involve others as well, you know, as far as volunteers to be a part and help out in what we're trying to do. And, and, uh, and any of our listeners could go now and become a co-owner if they go to LouisvilleCommunityGrocery.com. Is that right? They go to LouisvilleFoodCoop.com or LouisvilleFoodCoop at gmail.com. Somebody will contact you. 
But yes, we would love for you all to become owners and become uh, members, you know, of our co-ops. And uh, you can actually come see the some members of the Louisville Community Grocery if you're not a email uh, website person. Kind of person. Yeah. You can check yeah. us out. We have our second pop-up of the season at St. George's Episcopal Church yeah. on the Friday before Memorial Day weekend from 1 to 6. And St. George's mm -hmm. Episcopal Church is at 1201 South 26th Street. There's a whole collection of Episcopal churches that are working on resourcing St. George's Episcopal and two other West End Episcopal churches. There's a Baptist church across the street that's partnering with us for this pop-up. And there's a funeral home around the corner too. Porter's Funeral Home is gonna, they're gonna help us promote that. We are looking for people who are willing to help us canvas. We wanna go out and tell everybody the news and invite as many people as we can to become an owner. You can actually become an owner for as little as $25. A full ownership though is $125. There are business ownerships. So a lot of people say, well, what can I do to help food access in West Louisville? Come out and talk to people. Uh, St. George's is a dare to care food site. Uh, we are also going to put our first partnership pantry. So uh, the grocery, Sowers of Justice Network, and some other community partners are coming together to make sure that the Little Free pantries are located in West Louisville. A lot of us are familiar with the Little Free libraries. We don't know as much about the food pantries. But there are, for every four pantries uh, in other parts of the community, there's only one in West Louisville. And so we're trying to make it geographically equal. So the people uh, in West Louisville who already, we already know they have uh, a bigger problem with food access than some other parts, have access 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So that's um, Friday the 28th from 1 to 6 at St. George's Episcopal Church. You can learn, learn more about us. Pants. You can buy some swag if you need a t-shirt or a shopping bag. We've got that. And we'll have some fresh groceries for you to look at from some of our farmers, our local farmers. Nice. You know, Doug, I always say we're all better together. You know, mm. when we all come together, we can do we can make anything work out, you mm. know. So yeah. I think it's been good with all of our communities. You know, sometimes we'll say, well, I'm in the West. I'm in, But it's so good when we can collaborate together and come together and work it all out together, mm -hmm. you know, for the for the same common goal to have this co-op. And we're going to achieve that goal as we work and move forward. And the idea uh, the idea is to shift away from an extractive model, an extractive economic model, right? And that's, that's where this connection to, you know, the history exactly. of the enslaved in Louisville mm -hmm. comes in, right? Like, Teresa, tell us about the what the economy looked like at Riverside in those days that it wouldn't have functioned without enslaved peoples, right? It would not. And um, the, it, the, the enslaved people were the driving force. They, it was, it was, our country was built on the backs of other people. Mm. It was built with the stolen labor. Mm. And I tell people all the time, you know, they, act, they, they say, oh, you know, these things are in the past and it was a long time ago. And I try and personalize it. You know, um, Dave, the, um, one of the enslaved men, 
really um, his value was a point of contention in the litigation around Gabriel Farnsley's estate. Um, and he was, his assessed value was $700. In 1865, Dave wasn't given the $700 hmm. that his body was valued at. Hmm. There, was, there was no network. Right. There was no compensation. There was no accountability, and people want to to rush to um, you know to reconciliation, but there's no reconciliation without acknowledgement. And and really, we as as historians are, are here to 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 make sure that people understand that it's not rewriting history. It's telling more of, of the story of our collective past and the story of us. It's not black history. It's not white history. This is American history. And this is um, a certain part of it. There has to be a little bit of a reckoning, but at least some accountability, at least a recognition of, of, of the historical significance of of what happened and of people's past and and why how the past um and what had happened what was done to people led to where um the communities they see are today because it's one of the one of the horrible exploitive exploitative things is that that people who are subjugated to these systems of oppression are blamed for their own oppression oh yeah Oh, and right, to the point where they internalize that, right. and um, and it. So we you know, have. Excuse me, Teresa. I'm going to ask you a question. Sure. How do we kill out those old mindsets? Because what you're speaking of now was in the past, right? But there are still people in this present time that still have those past mindsets. Mm. How it, can that be destroyed and killed? Yeah, I really, truly believe that it it has to be um, a multifaceted battle. We um, and that's ultimately, I would love for the coalition to go beyond just programming and information. I would love for it to um, to grow into you know a place. Um, an organization that does things like anti-racism training, um, that does professional development for people who work in this field, um, that supports, you know, coalitions between these places and organizations like yours. Um, there is a movement, um, something called Green Reparations, and I read an article um, they, and it was on a study that they did in Detroit and one that they did in Berlin, and. Um, and it's about how we use these spaces, um, you know, and, and one of the things we've done on our site is because as a, as a city entity, we have no, um, we, the source of income that the city, the city expects us to have is from rentals, mm -hmm. but the, the site of the, the slave dwellings, we are going to definitely, um, we have reconceptualized how we use that space and we are going to designate that as a space that isn't available for rentals and it's not available for photographs and um and and i think it just but it's a multifaceted approach and it takes people on the inside who are willing to um 
to betray the system and to sabotage it from within. Um, I think it takes people standing in the street, you know, demanding change. I think it um, it comes from the educational systems. It, it comes, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, a slow erosion. And I've somebody who works along the river, I've seen the river take massive chunks out of the bank. Um, but I've also seen the power of one continuous stream drip of water. Um, and I'm honest, as a historian, I'm as hopeful as I've ever been that we can, that we're, we are at this amazing moment in time where we can push forward and make massive leaps and really come together. We have people looking at things that they never looked at before. Mm. And we, I have people coming to my site who are, who feel betrayed because they didn't know this part of our history and they just were never taught better that if they had been taught better, they would have done better. And now they want to know how to do better. And, um, I think is to learn history. Um, we sewers of justice network, um, helped found this Asala chapter. So a lot of people don't know who Carter G Woodson is like we, we know what Black History Month is, but we don't know how it got started. The um, Association for the Study of African American Life and History has a chapter here that um, was meeting at Simmons when people were meeting in person. There are other places to meet. Louisvillians showing up for racial justice is just one of the sort of four white people groups. Asala is an African-American led group. But if we don't know what we don't know, how do we move forward? One of my favorite examples, most of us celebrate Memorial Day with a cookout. A lot of us are, are uh, eager to celebrate the, mil the armed services, but most people don't know that the common credit for starting Memorial Day is 10,000 black Union soldiers. Mm. So, you know, if you're going to celebrate Memorial Day, look at every holiday and look at everything that you think you know or what, you, what you're told and say, What's the real history behind that? So I challenge our leader, listeners yeah. to Google Memorial Day, uh, go to the Wikipedia site and look at the second example and you'll see what I'm talking about. Huh. You yeah. know, I was going to say, Doug, that so many times, you know, we just get the surface, but we never get the root mm -hmm. of issues. Uh, just like the things that you're talking, talking about here now, to, uh, Teresa, that's getting to the root of some things. Absolutely. You know, some, some things, some people... The truth and the root. <laughs> Those are two of the things that we need to get to. And so many times we just get smooth over the surface, mm -hmm. but yeah. we never get down into the real reality of things and how they really are. And, you know, and nothing can ever be changed until we get to the root of the matter. And and uh, the rest is like some of the things you were just talking about. You know, who knew about Memorial Day? Hmm. You know, but if we're just getting on just the surface of what we've just been taught and know, then we'll never. You can't do, like you said, you can't do or accomplish anything that you don't know to do. I think the other thing is to uh, we are a faith community town. We have a lot of people. Uh, the two questions that people are asked when they move to our community is what school did you go to? And they mean high school, not college. But the second one is what church do you go to? So. We, in common lingua franca here, we talk a lot about our faith and our faith values. A lot of secular values talk about compassion. So a lot of it is taking people from the values they proclaim, people of good faith, people of goodwill, 
people who, who uh, even if you're not a person of faith, if you are an intellectual person committed to humanitarian values, we need to start asking people, how do you live those out? How can we join mm -hmm. them together? Because it's not fair. We know the health outcomes. If you're an African-American person in, in Louisville, your health outcomes are going to be very different. The type of house you live in, the health care you can afford, the food you can afford should not depend on what you look like on the outside. If, if the color of your skin, if you're brown or black or bronze, it should not make a huge difference in health outcome, uh, life expectancy, your educational attainment, um, your ability to buy a car or to buy a home for your family. And those are all things that we we all want those things. And it's not fair for some people not to be able to get those things simply because of their history. Well, and we truly are um, our brother and sister's keeper. Um, and, right. and, and the Some of Us All is a great book because it talks about and, and really uh, that's one of the reasons Ibram Kendi's book was so powerful for me, because I always thought that if people were knew better than they do better. But the fact that people benefit from not doing better, I realized that I was going to have to incur, like, inspire people to act against their own self-interest in order to do better for us all as a group. And it really comes back to you, if, if, if one of us is not free, then none of us are. Right. You know, I'm not free unless everybody around me is. And it, you don't necessarily have to be un-American, but you have to realize that um, that the American dream is not attainable for everybody. And the real promise of America is never going to be realized until it is, until it is applicable to everybody. And, um, you know, go back to kids. Kids, ha kids have an innate sense of fairness. And kids know when something isn't fair. And that's why people have to be socialized, whether it's in the present or in the past. We have to be socialized to accept these things that ultimately we know aren't fair. And it's just, it, it's time. It's time that equity um, is, the, is the rule and not the exception. I want to throw out one more answer because I think that's the, that's the question we're really asking the Lord is how do we get how do we get the change we want to see? Mm. Um, a friend of mine who's a social psychologist um, did a, a lot of studies about weight loss. It, and he said that the reason why Weight Watchers is so successful, it's not the program, it's not the points, it's not Oprah endorsing it. It's people talking together about their struggles and why they have not been successful in, in the past. And being with a group of people who say, this, is the, this goal is worth it. And I think that's our the promise. The way forward for us is a, a cooperative grocery where people can come and say, everybody in this community uh, deserves fresh, safe, healthy food. They deserve food access. We believe in this. We can make this happen. And you can come be part of that group. Um, you can be an owner in the grocery, but there's also a not-for-profit called LACE that is working to help other types of cooperative ventures take off. And you can join that. For $20 a year or $25, I forget what it is. But there are people here who are definitely committed, Dolores, to, to helping that vision that you've shared in that question you've asked. There are people who need to change, and there are ways that we can help people change. Um, and I think this, this whole discussion about cooperative economics is a great head start. And 
we we don't need a lot of reminders about how colonialism doesn't work, but you can go to these historic <laughs> sites and we can talk about it. Well, and really, I mean, it's opening it's opening up spaces um, to really do the work that a lot of people have to do in order to get to a point where they understand that cooperative efforts and equity are are the solution, and and it's not, um, and it, it's. And I tell people, all, and, and how to be good allies. Mainly people um, people are afraid. They're afraid of making mistakes. They're afraid of doing something wrong. And I tell people all the time that really all you have to do is accept that you're never going to be a perfect ally. Hmm. But stay humble. Stay willing to learn. Stay willing to be teachable. Hmm. And um, and just honor other people's stories. And um and, and so I really hope that what we're doing is is not just history work, but also um, what I would think of as restorative social justice, where we are facilitating a, an understanding that people take away into their modern lives. And they and hopefully they look at the present a little bit differently, too. And Doug, just like you said, the future of the co-op, it, it'll be a type of bringing the community together, right, people right. coming together as one in their communities. You know, knowing one another, more one-on-one in the grocery store, knowing each other, saying, well, this is a part of, we could have cooking classes there or whatever, you know, people just gathering and enjoying one another's company as community and building and growing together. And that is exactly what we want in building this future co-op That's for right. our community. You'll, you'll never meet the CEO of Kroger, but you can meet Dolores Butler at the Louisville Community Grocery. Unfortunately, we're all out of time. This has been such a rich, rich conversation. I wish we could go on for another hour, but we've got to wrap it up here on Truth to Power. I want to thank our guests today so much. Dolores Butler from the Louisville Community Grocery. You can learn more about them at louisvillecommunitygrocery.com. And I also want to thank Teresa Lee, Historic Super site supervisor down at Riverside, the Farnsley Mormon Landing. Come on out and visit them. When are y'all open? We um, just reopened for tours six days a week, uh, Tuesday through Sunday. Um, Go to riverside-landing.org and you can book a tour. And Dolores, um, Doug, anything that I can help you um, do and support your effort, please just let me know. I would love to be able to help. And again, we hope hope to see everybody out on May 28th, uh, 1 to 6 p.m. for the next Louisville Community Grocery pop-up at St. George's Episcopal Church there at 1201. South 26th Street. And that is all the time we have for today here on Truth to Power. Thanks so much, Doug, to you as well. I've been Justin Mogg, and we will be back in your ears again in one week's time.